0: On Monday, Marvel Comics admitted what those of us who actually read comic books have known all along. The emphasis on leftist messaging in comic books is pretty much killing the appeal. David Gabriel is the vice president of sales at Marvel, and he said that comic book retailers were reporting a drop-off in interest in the new diversity-oriented comics. He said, quote, What we heard was that people didn't want any more diversity. They didn't want female characters out there. That's what we heard, whether we believe that or not. I don't know if that's really true, but that's what we saw in sales. Any character that was diverse, any character that was new, our female characters, anything that was not a core Marvel character, people were turning their nose up. Okay, it's not racism and sexism driving people away from Marvel. It's a feeling of irritation that classic characters are being redrawn and recast in order to assuage the feelings of social justice warriors. Iron Man is Tony Stark. He is not Riri Williams. Captain America is Steve Rogers. He is not Sam Wilson. Thor is Thor, not female Thor. Spider-Man is Peter Parkett, not Miles Morales. This isn't to say that the comics with Miles Morales aren't good. They're actually really good if you read them. Although the Iron Man series with, really, with uh, Riri Williams actually kind of sucked. It's to say that nobody wants to see iconic superheroes recast as completely different people to appease quotas on race and sex. Superheroes are brands. You can't twist those brands without hurting them. When it comes to new superheroes, people are always skeptical, so this poses something of a challenge. How do you better reflect diversity in comics without tanking sales, if that's something you want to do? The answer, you have to make new characters awesome, then worry about whether they're diverse later. Or, use a historic character to infuse new life. So Marvel did the latter. With with Black Panther, they hired Ta-Nehisi Coates to write the comic, which immediately became a big bestseller for them this year. The comic, by the way, is actually unreadably bad, but at least Marvel tried doing diversity the right way here. In the DC universe, Harley Quinn, who was a marginal character 20 years ago, is now a major bestseller because she's interesting, not because Batman had to become Batwoman. But the comic book industry keeps attempting to slam its constituents over the head with social justice messaging, and that's actually killing the quality of comics. See, for example, Batman, Advocate for Trayvon Martin, or Captain America, Illegal Immigration Defender, both of which happened last year. Turning iconic characters into avatars of social justice actually kills sales. It's throwback comics doing most of the heavy lifting at this point. Marvel and DC should take note that it's not American racism driving that choice. It's Americans discontent with the left's willingness to sacrifice quality and legacy for leftist politics. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Alright, so we're going to get to the big breaking news that is happening right now in just a second. Something that is really bad for the Obama administration and pretty good for Team Trump. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Texture. So, if you're somebody who is addicted to information, if you're an information addict like I am, if you love magazines, if you love reading, if you spend every waking hour reading, Texture is for you. It is an app that you download, and it allows you to subscribe, basically, to up to 200 magazines with one subscription fee. So... Basically, you pay in, it's like $9.99 a month, and you get over 200 free magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash Ben, you get a 14-day free trial. So you get to check it out. You get the back issues. Uh, And again, they're offering that 14-day free trial. I use it for Reader's Digest. We use it also uh, for Sports Illustrated. They have an entire list of magazines, New Yorker, Time, the Atlantic, Vanity Fair. If you like long-form journalism, it is perfect for you. You get them all in one app. So you go to texture.com slash Ben. That's texture.com. Ben And it means that you're never going to be bored again, basically. You're sitting there with your phone, and you go to your Texture app. You open it up. You see what's the latest, and it is just fantastic. Again, $9.99 a month. You get over 200 magazines, and you can try it for free for 14 days. See if you like it. Go to texture.com slash ben to check it out. It is entirely digital, and it is the easiest way to feed your need for information. Texture.com slash ben, 14-day free trial. Uh, Again, I I love it. My wife uses it as well. It's really terrific. Okay, so the big story of the morning was late breaking. It actually broke a little bit over the weekend, but now it's been confirmed from Eli Lake at Bloomberg. So originally it was broken with uh, Mike Cernovich. Um, For some reason, the White House is now funneling stories to Mike Cernovich, which makes very little sense because he has very little credibility. But Eli Lake then confirmed it, and so did Maggie Haberman over at the New York Times. They actually did the legwork. So Eli Lake of Bloomberg has now reported that Barack Obama's National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, repeatedly requested information from the intel community on members of the Trump transition team and campaign, unmasking them to an audience beyond the intel community in the process. Now, normally, when you get a raw intel feed and you're a member of the political branches, they basically black out all of the people who are American citizens caught up in in the intel. So let's say you're listening to the Russian embassy and they are talking to Mike Flynn, the intel, when it is provided to people like Susan Rice, will say, Russian ambassador was talking to US citizen one, right, it'll just black it out, because it's not important, if there's no crime being committed, for people to know who this is, because they're afraid of exactly this sort of thing. The whole point of masking is to prevent the dissemination of information about innocent Americans who are not actually doing anything criminal. So what happened is that apparently, according to Lake, in February, the National Security Council Senior Director for Intelligence, Elliot Cohen Watnick, discovered Rice's multiple requests to unmask U.S. persons in intelligence reports that related to Trump transition activities. He brought this to the attention of the White House General Counsel's Office, who reviewed more of Rice's requests and instructed him to end his own research into the unmasking policy. The intelligence reports were summaries of monitored conversations, primarily between foreign officials discussing the Trump transition, but also in some cases direct contact between members of the Trump team and monitored foreign officials. One U.S. official familiar with the reports said they contained valuable political information on the Trump transition, such as whom the Trump team was meeting, the views of Trump associates on foreign policy matters, and plans for the incoming administration. Now, just last month, Susan Rice was on TV, and she denied she knew anything about members of the Trump transition team being caught up in incidental intelligence gathering. That now appears to be a lie. As Eli Lake also points out, the revelation that Rice requested the documents would also help explain why House Intel Chair Devin Nunez went to the White House a couple of weeks ago, because he could only see the logs of what Rice was doing, not from Congress. He actually had to go to the White House to do that because that's where she used to work. It would also explain why Adam Schiff, the the Democrat on the House Intel Committee, basically has now gone silent over the weekend after seeing those documents at the White House. This is a huge story for the Trump White House. Now, Does it mean that Trump was right to say that he was wiretapped by the Obama administration? No, there's still no evidence that he was wiretapped by the Obama administration. There is, however, tremendous evidence now, and it is building day by day, that the Obama administration was seeking to compile all of the intelligence information in which the Trump team was incidentally swept up and then disseminated it broadly, which led to it being leaked. That is a scandal. That is the Obama administration targeting Trump team officials. That is the Obama administration without any sort of evidence of nefarious activity targeting the Trump team. They're not doing it specifically by by saying we're going to plant a wire in Trump's office, which is the next step. But it is them saying we have a higher level of suspicion and we're going to unmask Trump team members in the process, which is truly a big story. It's a really big story, actually. And the media have been ignoring that story in favor of focusing in on Team Trump which is really silly because again the only evidence we have no evidence on Trump Russia we have no evidence that Obama wiretapped Trump what we do have evidence of again and I'm being very specific about this because I want to be truthful and I want to be clear I unlike so many others in this field I actually care about what is true and what the facts are as opposed to what backs a particular narrative so Trump's narrative that Obama was wiretapping him or surveilling him that is not true he was not being wiretapped or surveilled in targeted fashion he was being targeted In targeted fashion by Susan Rice, according to this report, the national security advisor under Obama, who was always the fall person, right? She's always the person they trot out to do the dirty work because she's an Obama loyalist. She was, in fact, unmasking all of the Trump team officials by going to the intel community and requesting raw intelligence be provided to her. And then disseminating that apparently broadly, it was widely dispersed across the government. That meant lots of people knew that Mike Flynn was talking. To, US Ambassador Sergei, to, to Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak, which, of course, led to Flynn's resignation eventually. And all of this on the basis of nothing. Because there's still two questions that haven't been answered. One, what exactly did anybody do wrong? I, mean, I, I haven't seen the Trump team actually do anything wrong at this point. It looks like all the stuff that Flynn did that was, that was nasty and terrible, he was doing two years ago. He wasn't doing well. He was a member of the Trump team. That's number one. And then number two, if Team Trump knew about this, and apparently the White House General Counsel's office knew about it, Why didn't they just declassify this information and blow it out there? Why instead try to get it to Nunez? Why instead try to funnel it through House Intel? Maybe the idea here is that they knew that they had their trust compromised with the American people. And that if they trotted this out, everybody would accuse them of bias. So instead they tried to funnel it out through the House Intelligence Committee. Maybe that's what's going on. But that's a question that has yet to be answered. And then, of course, the last question is a small one, but an annoying one, which is, why in the world is the Trump administration trying to leak information to places like infowars and zero hedge and cernovich. Zero hedge is actually much better than infowars and cernovich. Why are they using them as the outlets as opposed to, you know, if you're going to leak, then leak to to outlets that have a higher level of public trust. I mean, forget about what I think of those outlets. Those are not outlets with a high level of public trust. If you're going to leak, leak to somebody like Eli Lake who actually has a level of public trust. Well, all of this is leading the democrats to sheer panic because they do not actually have anything here. It's it's kind of fascinating. The, the left keeps focusing in on Trump-Russia, and Adam Schiff, Representative Schiff, he basically admitted, we've got nothing. I mean, there's, there's no hard evidence linking Trump to Russian collusion.
1: This is whether or not there was collusion among members of the Trump campaign or surrounding the Trump campaign, Trump advisors. Can you say definitively that there was collusion? There were people affiliated with the Trump campaign who were working with Russians to time the release of damaging information about Hillary Clinton that had been, that had been hacked either from John Podesta or the DNC? Uh, I don't think we can say anything definitively at this point. Uh, we are still at the very early stage of the investigation. Now, the only thing I can say is that it would be irresponsible for us not to get to the bottom of this. Uh, we, really need to do, we really need to find out exactly what the Russians did because one of the most important conclusions that the intelligence community reached is that they are going to do this again to the United States they're doing it already in Europe so we can say you know conclusively this is something that needs to be thoroughly investigated uh, but but it's way premature to be reaching conclusions
0: And uh, and basically there he's saying, no, we don't have any evidence of this whatsoever, so what exactly are you going to do about it? I mean, the, the, the left has nothing here. They have nothing here. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's been bashed around a lot for not being a particularly great surrogate, she's exactly right when she says the media are talking about something of which there is very little evidence at this point.
1: The media constantly wants to talk about something that doesn't exist instead of something that does. We have been, we've spent the last couple of
0: months doing major policy initiatives and rollouts in the forms of executive order, rolling back regulations, creating an environment Where businesses are confident in hiring again we've heard from ceo after ceo small business owner that they're excited about this president they're excited about the economy and yet the media refuses to cover that but they're more than happy to talk about a story frankly that is just fake and and so in any case the democrats are panicking over all of this and so their language is becoming more and more extreme (coughs) excuse me on all of this so you have the newark mayor who's now coming out and he's trying to say that Trump is, is like a slave catcher, right? They're just getting more and more extreme because they're, they're panicking, which is weird. They're, they shouldn't be panicking. Trump's approval ratings are like 35% right now. But by the same token, there's nothing that they've got on Trump that's hard evidence. They actually, this is the thing, they're not content to live with Trump being an unpopular president. Instead, they are trying to go for the kill shot, and they don't have the kill shot, so they're becoming more desperate. So here are the Democrats struggling. Here's Newark's mayor saying that Trump is basically like a fugitive slave catcher. Well, I think that them targeting sanctuary cities is a way uh, for them to tell mayors and other folks, uh, you know, around the country, uh, one, that they're sticking to uh, what, what I think is a very unconstitutional and un-American policy uh, and uh, trying to intimidate us uh, into being what I've called fugitive slave catchers, to run around and do their bidding uh, in our cities. And if we refuse to do that, Uh, then it makes it difficult for them to to continue their policy because they don't have the resources to kind of run down all of the uh, undocumented residents uh, locally. The desperation is setting in. That is pathetic. Okay, The fact is that illegal immigrants are not slaves in the United States who are attempting to escape bondage, which is against both God's law and man's law. Okay, The idea that people who are coming into the country illegally and we don't know who they are, that you shouldn't be helping out the feds to figure out who they are, that's just absurd. But this is, the, this is the language that is escalating now. The Democrats think that because Trump won, their answer is to escalate their language. They don't understand that the reason that Trump won, I just spent some time in Pennsylvania, and I just spent some time in Indiana, and I'm just spent i spending time now in Florida. The reason that Trump won is because there's a whole group of people in America who feel like they were forgotten by the Democrats because the Democrats were too focused on inflammatory language, dividing American from American, to worry about their jobs, to worry about their lives. That's the reason why Trump won. But the Democrats are thinking, they're looking at Trump, And instead of seeing that Trump appealed to a certain number of people who felt forgotten by the Democrats, instead, they they think that Trump won because Trump was loud. And so they're just getting louder. So here's Nancy Pelosi getting even louder and more obnoxious.
1: Well, it's always been Paul Ryan's agenda. Uh, If you look at the Ryan budget of the last couple of Congresses before now, you will see that the the agenda... When did Donald Trump sign on to that? I think when he uh, decided to become the nominee of the party, he bought into the the, uh, deconstruction of government, the radical right-wing agenda. Uh, I don't even know if if Donald Trump will go as far as the Republicans in Congress. People say, well, how long will it take for the Republicans in Congress to say enough Donald Trump? I said, don't wait for that, because their agenda is very similar to his. If you look at their budget over the last few years, if you look at their... uh, uh, opposition to anything to do with the environment, climate change, and the rest. If you look at their anti-woman agenda, LGBT agenda, you name it, they've been there.
0: Okay, so again, getting more and more extreme in the rhetoric. Now, what this may help them do, what this may help them do is win back the House. So Nancy Pelosi did this in the aftermath of Bush winning in 2004. A- after 2004, she got more and more extreme. And right now, Trump is cruising for a bruising in the House. He- he's probably going to keep the Senate because there are too many Democratic seats up for play. But in 2018, the House races do not look good for Republicans. Right now, when the, when the president of the United States is below 40%, the chances that he's going to retain the House become lower and lower. But again, the Democrats are just going to get more extreme in their language. That's not going to help defeat... Trump, it is going to help drive his approval ratings down. Tom Perez did the same thing. He's the the chair of the DNC. We'll play him in just a second, but first, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Zeal.com. So, one of my favorite services, I've used it, my wife has used it, my parents have used it, my parents-in-law have used it, my sister has used it. Zeal.com is all about massage on demand. So, if you need a massage because your back is screwed up, or because you're stressed out, and you really want to treat yourself, Zeal.com is the way to do it. You go over to Zeal.com and use promo code Ben and if you use that promo code, then you get $25 off your first massage. They're all licensed massage therapists. They check you to make sure that you're not some sort of creeper. Uh, and then they come over to your house. They bring the table. They bring the, the, the oil. They bring the, the soothing music, the whole deal. And they come over, and they give you a private massage on demand at a time of your choosing. You don't even have to leave your house. So much better than trying to schedule in advance with a spa. Less expensive than a spa. It's like 100 bucks. Uh, and our listeners can get $25 off their first massage. By using that promo code, Ben, at checkout, it's Zeal, Z E E L dot com. Make sure you hit that promo code, add promo code to Ben to use that checkout. At Zeal.com, you get $25 off your first in home, on demand massage. They have 8,000 masseuses across the nation. Again, I've personally used this, so has my wife, so many members of my family. They've all been ecstatic over the quality of the massages. My mother-in-law was really particularly happy with me, which worked out great for me because, hey, mother-in-law. So you're definitely, it's a great present for somebody, it's great for yourself, and it's really a lot less expensive than trying to do it the, the sort of traditional massage way, plus much more convenient they come to you as opposed to you having to go sit in a lobby somewhere and wait for your appointment to come up. Okay, so Tom Perez, is the head of the DNC, and he, like Nancy Pelosi, like this Newark mayor, he thinks that the way Democrats are going to win is by mirroring Trump's rhetoric rather than mirroring Trump's positioning with regard to blue collar workers. So here's Tom Perez ranting about the GOP. Yeah.
1: January 20th was undeniably an important day in this country, but January 21st was far more important. Merced in Paris. All over the world, he said, Donald Trump, you don't stand for our values. That's what they said. Donald Trump,
0: you didn't win this election. And, he, and then he starts cursing as well. Now, a lot of people on the right have been saying, oh, how dare he curse? Donald Trump's the president. We don't get to say how dare he curse anymore. <laughs> okay, that, that cat is long out of the bag. But it does demonstrate that the Democrats, as always, take exactly the wrong lessons out of their loss. Instead of figuring out that they need to appeal to the same people that Trump won away from the Obama acolytes, uh, they, they instead have decided to double down on his sort of rhetoric. Now, as we continue here, I want to talk about Donald Trump's credibility, what Donald Trump is doing right, what Donald Trump is doing wrong, and now what an opportunity he has and how he needs to push it forward. But for that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com right now and become a subscriber. $8 a month will get you that subscription. You get access to the rest of the show. You can watch it live. You're also going to be able to, to get access to the Shapiro store, which I keep promising is coming, but it actually is. Uh, Right now, if you're an annual subscriber, you get a free signed copy of Michael Mole's best-selling book, Reasons to Vote Democrat, a comprehensive guide, the most thorough guide to voting Democrat. There is, also makes a great gag gift. Uh, that That is, if you get the annual subscribership, um, but it, it is great to be a member uh, at Daily Wire because not only you get my show live, you also get Clavin's show live. Plus, you can be part of the mailbag, which we are doing on Thursday. So go over there and become a member or listen later at iTunes and SoundCloud for uh, for the rest of the show. If you listen there, make sure that you leave uh, a review because we always do appreciate it. Tonight, I'm speaking at University of Florida, by the way, so you should be able to watch it. I think we're live streaming it over at DailyWire.com. Check that out. In the meantime, we are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So what's working for Trump and what's not working for Trump? So the scandal that shows that the Obama administration was clearly targeting Trump transition team members, gathering information, unmasking the Trump transition team, obviously good for Trump. And undercuts the credibility of the media because the media have basically been ignoring this thing. Undercuts the credibility very clearly of of the Obama administration and the Democrats. So what Trump has to do now is he has to increase his credibility with the American public. The way to increase his credibility with the American public is to basically shut up. If Trump could shut up for five minutes, he would increase his credibility with the American public multiple fold, multiple fold. And the reason for that is because a lot of the people he has working for him are just terrific. A lot of the people who he has picked are great. Nikki Haley over at the U.N. is terrific. We played her clip earlier by accident. She's talking about how nobody at the U.N. is talking about Trump's tweets. Trump isn't telling me what to do. And, And foreign countries now are starting to figure out. We don't need to listen to Trump's Twitter feed. We'll just listen to the people who actually work for him. And so long as that is the case, that is a great thing because he's got a lot of very competent people working for him. Some of those people include Scott Pruitt over at the the Environmental Protection Agency, over at the EPA. He's talking about climate change and rolling back a lot of the Obama-era regulations on climate change. And here's what Scott Pruitt had to say. There are all kinds of studies that contradict
1: you. The UN's panel on climate change says it is at least 95% likely more than half the temperature increase since the mid-20th century is due to human activities. NOAA, that's our own National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, says there's more carbon dioxide now than in the last 400,000 years. And NOAA says 2015 and 2016 are the two hottest years on record. Mr. Pruitt, are we supposed to believe that that's all a coincidence? No, look, Chris, I've said through the process, uh, in my confirmation process, individually with senators as well, that there's a warming trend, the climate is changing, and human activity contributes to that change in some measure. The, The real issue is how much we contribute to it, and measuring that with precision. But then also, what is the process as far as response? What can we do about it? The tools in the toolbox to address the CO2 issue. Uh, and, and you can't just simply, from an EPA perspective, make that up. You can't do what the president did pre- previously with the Clean Power Plan, President Obama and his administration, to simply reimagine authority. That's why we have a U.S. Supreme Court stay against the Clean Power Plan. That's why President Trump is dealing with that regulatory overreach and charting a new path forward to deal with these issues within the framework but of the but, Clean Air Act. Sir, you-
0: and, and so the question is that, that Wallace follows up with is, are you denying the science? No, he's not denying the science. He's suggesting that it's up to the legislature to actually make these rules. If they want to vote in favor of quashing industry, then it's up to them. It's not up to the EPA to unilaterally start quashing industry on the back of power it was never delegated. So there's a delegation of power issue. There are some scientific questions about the sensitivity of the climate. There are questions about how much of climate change is due to human activity. Even if we say that half of climate change is due to human activity, that does raise the question as to the slowing of climate change in the last 15 years. They say that 2015 and 2016 are the hottest years on record. But basically, the climate has been stable for the last 15 years or so, which is a trend that is not explained fully by the, by the carbon dioxide emissions. And we should be, obviously, according to Scott Pruitt, checking out the science before we can actually you know, push forward all of the things that, that the left wants us to do particularly because the vast majority of emissions across the world right now are not happening necessarily from the united states they are happening from countries like china countries like india developing countries that are really really impoverished so well, the point i'm making is that a lot of trump staffers actually know what they're doing the big problem here is trump trump keeps sticking his thumb in the pie chuck todd i think rightly says that trump's credibility ha- has taken a hit as he's president i uh, here, here's chuck todd on nbc okay however you look into
1: it it's clear donald trump's presidency at least for now is on an unsustainable trajectory nobody ever told me that politics was going to be so much fun donald trump is a president in crisis his governing agenda is going nowhere His credibility shattered with many his public approval is mired in the thirties and low forties and an escalating russia crisis is threatening to undermine the president's ability to persuade even Republicans that he can bounce back.
0: Okay, so you know I think this is overblown, but Trump is certainly not helping himself, and the Democrats are eager to pounce on this narrative. So here's an example. Here's Donald Trump. Two tweets from Donald Trump. Both of these happen in the last week. So tweet number one. Let's see if we can let's see if we can see that. It says anybody, especially fake news media, who thinks that repeal and replace of Obamacare is dead, does not know the love and strength in Republican Party. This is what he tweeted yesterday over the weekend. Here is what he tweeted a week before that. The Freedom Caucus will hurt the entire Republican agenda if they don't get on the team and fast. We must fight them and Dems in 2018. Okay, these two tweets cannot be held in the mind at the same time. You can't say the Republican Freedom Caucus is the worst thing that ever happened. Also, unity here is fantastic. You can't do that. You also can't say that Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus killed, repeal, and replace, and we're not bringing it back to the table, which is what Trump said, like, literally a week ago, uh, and then come back and say that unity is at an all-time high. People are just not going to believe you. They're not going to believe you that you're seeking unity when you have people like Dan Scavino, who actually works for the White House press office. He works for the comms office, tweeting things like this. Over the weekend, he tweeted, Donald Trump is bringing auto plants and jobs back to Michigan. Justin Amash is a big liability. Trump train, defeat him in primary. Okay, Scavino works for Trump, and he's calling for the primary defeat of a Republican congressman who disagrees with Trump on, on Trump care. He can't claim that you're for unity at the same time that you're doing all of that sort of stuff. Jim Jordan, who's a member of the House Freedom Caucus, he says, look, Trump is now the establishment.
1: Do you agree with Congressman Amash? Has the Trump administration merged into the same old establishment? I think Justin Amash, as I said before, is a good friend and someone I'm gonna help if he has a primary. But what I also understand is you look at the four corners of the document, look at the actual
0: legislation, read the legislation, understand what it does and doesn't do. It doesn't bring down premiums. Every health care policy expert will tell you that. It doesn't do that. Even CBO said it doesn't do that. So let's take a pause here. Sometimes I think we're getting all spun up. The sun's coming up tomorrow. Things will be okay. It's just a delay in doing this legislation. Okay, so here's the only point that I'm making with regard to Trump. If Trump wants to have a successful presidency, the Democrats will give him every every opportunity to do so. They sucked so much that he won. Okay, that's how much the Democrats suck. Not only did they suck so much that he won, he ended up with majorities in both houses of Congress. All he has to do is let the people that he picked, who are by and large very good do their jobs. All he has to do is stop tweeting for five seconds and just let things be. But that's going to require a change in character, or at least it's going to require him to take a backseat to his own agenda. I don't think he's going to do that. The biggest obstacle to Trump's success right here is Trump himself. Every factor is lined up in his favor right now, including media bias. Media bias is also lined up in his favor because it allows him to attack the media. That's where he should be putting his focus is on attacking the media when they're wrong and then sitting back and letting it go the rest of the time. It's just foolishness to engage the way that he is in in this sort of back and forth with himself. It's not going to help him in any real way. Okay, time for some things I like and some things that I hate. So things that I like: I'm doing classic French literature since we did um, since we did some uh, classic. Literature, I think, from America. Uh, we did some classic plays a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. The, of Notre Dame. This is the this is the original book, um, not the not the Disney movie, which actually I've never seen. I've heard it's pretty good, but the original book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, is a really good book. Victor Hugo is a terrific writer, um, and uh, and the Hunchback of Notre Dame is is a critique uh, in large measure of the Catholic Church and what he saw as the the overweening. Uh, the overweening arrogance and nastiness of a hypocritical Catholic church in France, so it is not a pro-Catholic church book, um, but it is a, a very moving book. It's in a very it's a very effective book. It's a very well-written book. Uh, the ending is not what you will see in any movie version. In all the movie versions, there's sort of a happy ending where Quasimodo lives and Esmeralda lives and everybody is happy, dappy-doo. That is not how the book ends. The book is a wildly depressing book, uh, so just know that going in, uh, but it is well-written. I think it's better written than Les Mis. I think it's better. Booked in Lamez, um, but uh, that uh, that's the thing that I like for today. Actually, other thing that I like, I may as well mention it now. Uh, last night I watched Silence, so I actually did see the Martin Scorsese film Silence last night. Uh, rented it, and I think it's the best thing Scorsese's ever done. I think it's really well directed. I think it's really well acted. I think it raises important questions about faith. I don't. I think that the final shot of the film, which is supposed to sort of let the priest in question off the hook. Uh, is a problem for religious believers. It makes it more of an anti-religious film than a pro-religious film. But the entire film is basically about why why do good things happen to good people, why do bad people prosper. Uh, It's based on a book uh, about these, these these Portuguese priests who are trying to infiltrate Japan and convert people, and the Japanese government, which is trying to stop the infiltration of Christianity, and they murder Christians, uh, and they crucify them, and they drown them, and they torture them. And half the movie is basically Christians being tortured and this priest being blackmailed into giving up his faith in order to stop the torture of other people. And what does he do? And it's, I don't want to give away the ending, uh, but I can say that the, the entire film is very moving. It's very gut-churning. It's not something you want to watch twice, but I think that it asks some important questions for people of faith, even if it comes up with some of the wrong answers about the nature of faith and the public expression of faith, because I think that, and not to give anything away, but it sort of suggests that private faith is more important than public expression of faith, and I don't think that that's actually true. I think that the opposite is in many ways more true. If you want to have a, a functioning society, if you want to have a society in which values are held in common, then you actually need to publicly express your faith. It's not enough for you to believe your religion. You actually have to act out the principles and values of your religion in public life without forcing other people to do so. Okay, things that I hate. So... Over the weekend, uh, I saw the movie *Life* uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, Rebecca Hamilton and Ryan Reynolds. So, uh, I don't want to give any of the uh, Re- Rebecca Ferguson, sorry, uh, Rebecca Ferguson. I, I don't want to give away any of the spoilers from the film. Uh, it's basically a remake of *Alien* with a few twists, uh, and it's it's well made. Uh, there, there's, you know, it's kind of dumb. There there are a bunch of plot holes. Things where you think, there's no way they would build a space station like that. You, know, you, you can tell from the, we can watch some of the preview, and then I, I won't give away any spoilers, but I'll talk about what's in the preview.
1: No man can fully grasp
0: how far and how fast we have come. There is no strife, no prejudice, no national conflict in
1: outer space as yet. Its hazards are hostile to us all. It's conquest deserves the best of all mankind.
0: And it's opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. That's it. The mission's primary goal has been achieved. We're looking at a large single cell, biological.
1: I'd hate to jump the gun, but I think it's time. We're looking at the first proof of life beyond Earth. you finally a daddy. It's going to be a big custody
0: battle over this one.
1: <laughs> that is beautiful. Ah! Oh, you! Oh, 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 oh,
0: oh, oh, no, no, you're no, not going to get you your goddamn Okay, So, as you can see, the alien is not good. Uh, the alien is not your friend. So, the, a couple of things that are funny about the, the trailer is that everybody just assumes, you know, they find a single-celled organism uh, that they quickly spur to multiplying and it becomes a creature. Um, but they say that this is proof of life. How funny. I'm, I'm, I, was, I was told by the left that a single cell, a fertilized egg, which is more than one cell, I, I was told that, the, that the, the, the left thinks that that's not life. So apparently, if we found it in outer space, it's life, but if we find it in a woman's uterus, then it is not life. So that's number one. Number two, uh, the, the film itself um, is uh, it's, its about a creepy monster in a spaceship with a bunch of people, and then there are a bunch of questions as to, like, why people act the way they do, uh, why are they unable to stop what is basically a uh, a relatively small-sized alien from destroying everything, um, and then it's got an ending that is is—it's uh, a crowd-pleaser. Uh, and I will not tell you whether I'm being sarcastic or not until you've actually seen it. Um, it's not a faith based movie. It is, it is definitely a nihilistic film, and the whole point of the film is nihilistic. So I guess in that sense, you know, there's one point where they say maybe it'll teach us more about the meaning of life. And apparently, the meaning of life is death, so that's really exciting. There are a bunch of people who had said that it was actually going to be the prequel for Venom, um, which would have been hilarious, but I don't think that that is true. Uh, it was not a movie I liked. It is a movie that is well made, it's well acted. Um, It's a rental. I I don't think that's something you have to see in the theaters. Okay, other things that I hate. So the left has decided that the Bible is something that they want to push now. So now the left, it's so funny, the left accuses people on the right, people like me of being theocrats, right? We're, We're theocrats because look at that Shapiro, he wears a yarmulke everywhere and he talks about God sometimes and on Wednesdays he does a Bible segment. He's a theocrat, he wants to rule our life with religion. Now, as I've said many, many times, I never make political arguments on the basis of religious authority. So I never say God says X, therefore, the government should do such and such. I always try to make a secular-based argument that everybody can logic along with me, even if you don't agree with my primary authority. The problem with arguing from biblical authority is if I say that the Bible says X, you can say, "Well, I don't believe in the Bible." And <coughs> excuse me, and then the entire argument is moot. So the Washington, but now what we're seeing from the left is something that Obama did, Pelosi's done it too. They've started citing the Bible in defense of the government taking things from people. So. This week, the Washington Post ran a headline by Caitlin Dewey. It's a GOP lawmaker. The Bible says the unemployed shall not eat. Okay, that's not what the lawmaker said. The, rep- the issue was uh, Representative Jody Arrington, who spoke at length about food stamps. And he said, quote, The scripture tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And then he goes on to say, We hear that some among you are idle. I think that every American Republican or Democrat wants to help the neediest among us. And I think it's a reasonable expectation that we have work requirements. I think that gives more credibility, frankly, to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. In other words, you want to have work requirements for people who are capable of working because you don't want to incentivize sloth, basically. But this was not good enough for the Washington Post. They suggested that biblical conservatives thought that unemployed people who are unemployed for whatever reason were against helping people who are unemployed. Meanwhile, over at the New York Times, Nick Nick Christoph, who is about as religious as, as the lamp behind me, uh, he said that he, he wrote a whole column called And Jesus Said Unto Paul Ryan, in which it's, it's so funny how the left's ideas of parody are really just idiocy, where he rewrites a bunch of biblical episodes from the New Testament and and makes Paul Ryan make uh, basically talk back to Jesus. So... For example, he says, A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched his clothes in hope of a cure. Jesus turned to her and said, Fear not, because of your faith you are now healed. Then spoke pious Paul of Ryan, But teacher, is that wise? When you cure her, she learns dependency. Then the poor won't take care of themselves, knowing that you'll always bail them out. You must teach them personal responsibility. So this is his example of what Republicans would say to Jesus, neglecting, of course, the fact that, for those who believe in the New Testament, Jesus was capable of healing just with his hands, so there wouldn't be a lot of health care costs there. And second of all, the idea that we don't want people to be healed in medicine is just not true. We also don't want to force people into providing services against their will, because that's called forced servitude. Christoph then does the, the Good Samaritan parable, with, with Ryan interjecting that the Good Samaritan's intervention is, quote, unsustainable and sends the wrong message. It teaches travelers to take dangerous roads, knowing that others will rescue them from self-destructive behaviors. Okay, number one, uh, again, that is not anything like what conservatives would say about the parable of the Good Samaritan. They would say that you have somebody who is helping somebody out in a private way, and they should do that because that's a good thing to do, not that somebody on the road should be forced by the government to help out the guy on the road, because that's not quite the same thing. But here's the thing. What the left is using the Bible to do now is cram down its own version of, of theocracy, They don't actually believe in the Bible because the Bible basically goes to personal behavior. It's your relationship with God and you abiding by God's laws in order to help other people. They don't believe in that. They believe that Basically, they should use the Bible when it's convenient as a roadmap for government, for government itself, which is theocracy. It is technical theocracy. Every time they cite the Bible, they're doing that as an excuse to allow government to take from some and redistribute to others. Now, neither the Old Testament nor the New talks about government-compelled redistribution of wealth. There is nothing in either the Old Testament or the New Testament that talks specifically about that. Even the stuff in the New Testament where it says the, the disciples of Jesus held their property in common, that talks about how they were basically a family and how close they were, so they held property in common, just the way that I hold property. Property in common with my wife. That's not the same thing as saying everyone in a given society should be forced to hold property in common. Even the passage of Leviticus in, in Vaicra that requires farmers to leave a corner of your field uncut. It doesn't require the farmer to actually go down, cut the corner of the field, and then hand it to the poor. It requires the poor to come and pick the sheaves off the stalks, and then it requires that, that it's, it's not actually a large amount. It's like one-sixtieth of the field. There's not even a specified amount in the Torah as to what the corner of the field is, like how big it is. So the rabbis later specify one-sixtieth of the field, but there's no enforcement mechanism. It never says in the Torah that if you don't do this, then you are punished with X. It's not part of the criminal law. There's a bunch of stuff in Vaikra that is criminal law. If you don't do X, then you're punished with Y, but that's not part of it. Here's the bottom line. The founding view, the conservative view of religion, is that voluntary religious practice and community fills the gaps so that government does not have to. That is the purpose of voluntarism. The left does not like those communities, so instead what it says is that religious communities are bad, but we will take the rules that we like from the Bible and then we will cram them down using government. So they want government to provide a substitute for religious communities as opposed to conservatives who want communities to provide a substitute for the government. And that is never going to work. When government fills the gap that religious communities used to take, you're removing the other side of the equation. If I'm reliant on my religious community and I go through a hard time and I rely on the religious community, the idea there is that I know I'm taking something from my friends and family and I don't feel good about that and I want to contribute back. When government provides you a quote-unquote entitlement, there are no entitlements in a religious community. There aren't. Right? There's just giving and receiving. There's no entitlements. Once a government labels something an entitlement, you do have the moral hazard, which is, I don't know the person I'm taking money from, it's just coming from some nameless, faceless government, so I'm not doing anything wrong in taking it, and I owe nothing back when I actually do take the money. And that's a huge problem. But again, the left endorses theocracy rather than voluntary religious practice, but only in certain cases, right? They'll say that it's theocracy for me not to serve a same-sex wedding if I'm a baker, but it's not theocracy for them to cite the Bible in removing money from me and then redistributing it. Which is pretty amazing. So next time the left says that the theocrats are all in the Republican Party, they're all in the right wing, I just point out to them that the way that the left uses the Bible in the United States is actual theocracy. The way the right uses the Bible in the United States is as a way of living private life and creating virtue in private communities so that the government cannot become an overbearing, uh, an overbearing tyrannical body. Okay, so that brings us to the end of today's show. I know it's a little bit short, but don't worry. We will be back tomorrow. I'll be back in L.A. tomorrow. Tonight, we're supposed to see some action at University of Florida. Some protesters are supposed to show up. I guess we have a crowd of at least 1,000 people, so that should be a lot of fun. Uh, And we'll try to live stream it over at our Facebook page on Daily Wire. I think that uh, Young America's Foundation is also live streaming it, so don't miss it. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is
1: The Ben Shapiro Show. (laughs)